God, we now approach your word and we ask you, Lord, for help. God, we are sinners. Our minds and hearts are prone to go a thousand different directions. But Lord, this morning we want to focus them on you, on your son, on everything about you that is lovely and excellent. So Lord, please open our eyes this morning that we may behold wonderful things from your law. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. So we are coming now to the end of the book of Philippians. I think we've done 15 or so sermons in this book. And Paul is now going to draw the book to a close. The first two words in our text today are finally brothers. It's not the first time Paul has said finally in Philippians, but he means it this time. He's about to actually wind down the book. And some of the most memorable and glorious things about the book of Philippians are in these verses between us and the end of the book now. So Philippians 4, we're going to start in verse 8. Actually, let's start in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In this text, we see two imperative verbs from Paul. Uh, I wonder if you know what an imperative verb is. Imperative verb. It's a verb that gives a command, right? It makes a request. Do this. Well, we've got two here. And these two imperative verbs are going to provide the headings by which we're going to consider this text this morning. So I'm going to read the text one more time. And I want you to see if you can discern, okay, what are the imperative verbs here that he's talking about? Starting in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Did you find them? Two imperative verbs. I see a lot of nodding. Think on these things. So it's a command. Think. Practice these things. So those will be sort of the two headings that we'll use this morning. Uh, Think on these things. That'll deal with verse 8. Practice these things. That'll deal with verse 9. So Christian, let me just say at the outset, your thoughts matter. Like your secret thoughts. Things that nobody else knows you think. No search history that anyone's going to find on your thoughts. But they matter. Your practices matter. What you do matters. Your deeds matter. What you think about matters. What you do matters. They matter eternally. 
Uh, I want to reinforce this point by just reading you a small portion of Romans chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. Paul says in Romans 8, those who live according to the flesh, to practice, those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Boy, that's big. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit, to be spiritually minded, is life and peace. If you live according to the flesh, this is Paul, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see there how thoughts and actions are connected. If you're living by the Spirit, it's because you've set your mind on the Spirit. If you're living according to the flesh, if you're living carnally, it's because you've set your mind on carnal things, fleshly things. What you choose to dwell upon does become what you practice. And if that's not the case, you're a hypocrite and a liar. So I want us to give careful thought this morning to what we think about and to what we do, what we dwell upon and what we practice. So let's start first with verse 8. Think on these things. We'll spend more time on this one than on verse 9. Think on these things. Let's look at these items, these qualities that Paul lists. What is it that Paul wants us to be considering? These verses are going to give us a template for our thoughts, how we ought to think, a standard against which to measure our thought life. So as we go through these, ask yourself, do these things occupy my thoughts? How much mental energy have I expended in the last week on these sorts of things versus trivial things or wicked things? There are quite a few of them, so I'll have to be very brief with some, but let's begin with truth. Whatever is true, this seems to be pretty comprehensive. If it's true, it's good. Truth in attitude and thought and action and speech. Truth about yourself. Truth about others, truth about God, truth about the world around you. This is in opposition to deceit and slander, false speech, uh, dishonest actions. Uh, it's also in opposition to ignorance, right? A plea of ignorance did not help Job's friend Eliphaz. Remember that? Eliphaz comes and shows up on the scene and gives this counsel to Job, and God says, who is this that darkens my doorway with these words that are devoid of understanding? Here's what God says about Eliphaz. My anger burns against you and against your friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. So Eliphaz is not even allowed to pray to God for forgiveness in that instance. God says, Job, you're going to have to come and intercede for him. Because my anger is so hot against him. Why? What did he do wrong? Well, in ignorance, he said things about God that even sounded pretty good, but were false. They weren't true things about God. We, on the other hand, are to continually be considering things that are true. We are to think truly. Honorable. Whatever's honorable. This word is used elsewhere by Paul to describe elders and deacons. When he says that elders and deacons must be dignified. Same word, honorable, having dignity, having nobility, worthy of honor. Think of Proverbs 8, where wisdom says, hear, for I will speak noble things. 
And from my lips will come what is right. Wisdom is speaking things in that passage, things that deserve honor, things that are worthy of your attention. This is the opposite of what is light and trivial and flippant, right? If there's a a pitfall for us today, that's probably it. Our thoughts are too trivial. Our thoughts are too light and flippant and worthless for most of the time. That's what often pulls at us, as opposed to things that are openly wicked and openly dark, right? Like the odds of me leaving today and bumping into somebody on the street, and uh, they offer me hard narcotics, and I suddenly go, you know, I think I might try this, right? Like odds of that are slim. But how about the odds of me going home and spending my afternoon trivially? Spending my afternoon thinking about things that are just worthless, light, Way too flippant for somebody who, at all times, is on the precipice of eternity, right? There's a very real and present danger for us to think too often on things that are trivial and not on things that are worthy of honor, honorable, noble, high things. Just, this is pretty straightforward, not what's unjust, Right? What is straight as opposed to what is crooked. What is right as opposed to what is wrong. Pure. We're to think on whatever's pure, whatever's holy and clean, as opposed to what is dark and dirty and despicable. This includes matters of a sexual nature, but it's not limited to that. So we should seek to keep our thoughts free from every stain of impurity. We should labor to be in our minds as we appear to be, as we seem to be on the outside. Right? Not to be hypocrites, but to be people of such integrity that if our thoughts were suddenly broadcast to the room and everybody could see what's going on in our minds, we would have nothing to be ashamed of. Is that true of your thoughts? Please consider that even though the room may not be able to see your thoughts, your mind is before the face of God at every moment, even right now. Could be a frightful thing. But may our thoughts be pure so that we would have nothing to be ashamed of in the way that we think. Lovely. Whatever is lovely. This word means pleasing, agreeable to us, but not necessarily even in a moral sense. There's like a moral component to this word. It has to do with what is widely considered to be beautiful or lovable. Uh, My wife and I actually had the privilege uh, several months ago to go to Italy. Um, the Kennisons actually watched uh, one of our children, so Brad's not here this morning, but many thanks to the Kennisons for that, that great gift. But uh, we, uh, we went to Italy, and so we got to spend a few days in Florence and a few days in Rome. And I remember when we were in Florence, we were walking through the city streets, and we suddenly round this corner in like our tour of the city, and we just had to like stop. And we both just gasped. I actually asked my wife, uh, recently, I said, what was like, the most beautiful thing you remember from that trip? And she said the same thing that I did. It was this instance. We're in Florence, walking through. We turn this corner, and we're just like, whoa. And it's this great cathedral. The Florence Cathedral is before us there. It's this really odd-looking sort of building. It's like green and white, but it's just huge. If you Google Florence, Italy, it'll be the first building that pops up. Uh, but it's just this grand, imposing structure. And so we just stood there for a moment and we kind of just forgot where we were. We're just looking at it like, oh my goodness, this is, this is beautiful. It's massive. This is unbelievable. And uh, we got to see a 
a bunch of cool things. We got to go to the Vatican Museum and we saw like the School of Athens, the painting by Raphael. We saw the, the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo. We saw the Statue of David. We saw the Colosseum, the Trevi Fountain, all these beautiful things. And at every single one of those stops, here's why I bring this up. We're surrounded by people. Phones out, pointed at them, taking pictures. Like we weren't doing the same thing. But we're surrounded by every, just these throngs of people that are here to see these things. Why? Well, it's obviously understood that these are beautiful, lovely, widely accepted works of art, sculptures, architecture. It's just beautiful. That's what Paul has in mind here. Things that are obviously lovely, widely considered, perhaps unanimously considered to be beautiful, commendable, similar to that. Not really a moral component there. It has to do with what is uh, winsome instead of what is offensive. What is attractive rather than what is repulsive. And these last two words, it's interesting, they don't really have a moral component to them. Beauty, worthy of commendation. But then he proceeds here to say, if there's anything excellent, excellence, this word only occurs here in all of Paul's writings. And it's only like in one or two other places in the entire New Testament. Very uncommon word in the New Testament. Very common word in the Greek world. Like ancient Greece, there's a comprehensive kind of excellence mentioned a lot. We'll get to that in just a moment. And then finally, praiseworthy. What merits praise? Pretty self-explanatory. Things that are worthy of being praised or admired. And we are to think on these things. Think on there means to, to consider, not to just think about like a light and passing thought, but to consider heavily, to give close consideration to, long dwelling upon a topic, reflecting on things in such a meaningful way that your conduct is shaped by them. I want to make a couple of applications at this point. I mean, there's an obvious application here. If I asked, what is the highest, best Thing that you could possibly occupy your mind with. If we're to think on what is true and honorable and pure and lovely, what would be the best and highest thing we could think about? Asked another way, who is the first and best of beings? God is the first and best of beings. Obviously, God in Christ is the source and fountain of every good thing. God is truth, purity, Honor, praise, excellence. He is these things personified. And so God ought to occupy our thoughts always. Even as we think on other things, we ought to think of them for his sake, right? When we sing the song, Oh, Praise the Name, what's the first line? I cast my mind to Calvary. We ought to be doing that. Casting our minds upon God, casting our minds upon Christ, casting our minds upon his love for us and what he's done for us, on his heart for us. The two eyes of our heart and our mind ought to be consistently focused on Christ. I quote it all the time. That's the, the, the quote from John Newton that I love so much. The great battle of the Christian life is to keep the two eyes of the heart fixed on Christ. The same is true of our minds. We ought to be thinking and delighting in Christ. We ought to be delighting in any good thing, anything that Christ bids us think about and bids us delight in. When we come here to the assembly, 
We sing together, we pray together, we confess the faith together. We ought to be actively considering how good and pleasant this is. What a good thing this is to be gathered in unity with my brothers and sisters. That ought to occupy our minds and occupy our hearts. We ought to delight in these things, these noble qualities of unity and humility and generosity. But our lives will only be shaped by these virtues if we consistently make them the content of our thoughts. We don't accidentally stumble into spiritual mindedness. Instead, we must consistently make effort to focus our minds upon Christ himself, on the face of Christ, and that will transform us from one degree of glory to another. One other application here, and this is very important. Please notice, the Bible here explicitly commands you what to think about. The Bible's telling you, think about this. Apparently, we have real control over what we think about, over what we consider, over what is in our minds. Uh, We'll consider the practice part of this text in just a few moments, but that makes more sense to us, right? The Bible commanding us what to do. We feel like we have real control over that. But the Bible also commands us what to think. It even commands us what to feel. Consider 1 Peter 2. Peter says, Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, Paul will sometimes make use of like the milk versus meat thing, like elementary truths about the Christian faith versus more advanced, mature elements of the Christian faith. That's not in Peter's mind here. This is just a comparison. You ought to want spiritual truth like a newborn baby wants milk. So he says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Did you catch that imperative verb? Long. Want. Desire is the command. The imperative verb is to desire. Desire this, not that. Isn't that different than how we typically think of our desires? We think, oh, well, the heart wants what it wants, you know? I can't help what I want. I mean, I want to want that, but I just don't want it. Our desires happen to us. Our thoughts happen to us. But no, Peter tells Christians, want this, not that. Paul tells us here, think about this, not that. Your thoughts don't just happen to you. You perpetrate your thoughts. You do the thinking. You do the dwelling. You do the considering. You choose what sits in your mind all day. Jesus himself says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual, immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. But far from just being like a condemnation on you, this ought to bring us great hope that we actually have control over what it is we think about. Why? Well, because, Christian, you are not a slave to your thoughts and feelings. Right? 
You're not a a helpless victim trapped by how you feel and what you think. No, I mean, if you've been particularly lazy lately in the maintenance of your mind, like if, if your mind, in terms of wicked thoughts, it's like the gutters haven't been cleaned out, the corners haven't been swept, the good news is, no matter how much dirt and grime have accumulated in your mind by lack of mortification of sin, Christian, you who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, by God's power, you can fix it. You can think about different things. You can think about things that are pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy instead of what is base and low. God has commanded you to control your mind, and he does not command his people in vain. I think I've made this point once before, but we don't think twice about this sort of command when it comes to lustful thoughts. Right? Like some sort of sexually impure thought crosses your mind. You don't hesitate to go, nope, not going to harbor that. Nope, thinking about something else. Not today, Satan. Get out. Nope, I'm going to go this way. I'm not thinking that way. I'm thinking this way. That seems doable to us. But we don't think about that for some reason with other sinful thoughts. Like think about anger. Ah, well, sorry, it's just my temper. It's just how I'm wired. I wish I could control it, but oh well. How about bitterness? Just can't help feeling this way about her after what she did to me. Well, perhaps it's because you rehearse her transgressions against you over and over and over again. Right? You consider the consequences of her actions and how her actions have affected you. What you'd like to say to her about what she said or what she did. We can control what we think. I want to briefly refer back to the previous sermon from two weeks ago on anxiety, because there just seem to be crystal clear applications to anxiety and worry from this text. Because I don't think it's a coincidence that after Paul answers the question, what should I do when I'm anxious? He immediately brings up what you're thinking about, what you ought to be considering and dwelling on. This idea of directing my mind towards things that are true, things that are pure and lovely, just seems like a wonderful antidote to anxiety and to worry. I don't know if you remember the, in the previous sermon I said that the root of many of my own anxieties has been my own self-centeredness. And I, I referenced that clinician who said that according to the data, excessive self-consciousness, so excessive worry about myself, and misery are so closely related that they might as well just be the same exact thing. Well, one thing that this text tells me is, guess what? You can get your thoughts off of yourself. You can stop thinking about yourself and your worries and your anxieties so much. Because the more I sit there and consider my own worry, the more worrisome I am prone to be. The more I sit there imagining possible horrible outcomes, the more worried I'm going to be about them. Um, I don't know if you ever had this sensation. Uh, I'm sure you did. Uh, But maybe it's just me. Uh, When you were a little kid and it's nighttime, and your parents tell you to, like, go get something out of the car in the driveway, or, like, go take the trash out down to the end of the driveway at the curb. Okay, good. Question answered. Um, You're right there with me. Um, You're pretty good, like, walking the trash down to the trash can. You're keeping it together, singing a song to yourself. As soon as you close that lid, what are you doing? You're running. 
running back to that door, and then you got to like walk in the door and compose yourself so no one knows you ran. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. Trash out. I'm good. <laughs> right? Well, that was a feeling I had when I was a kid. But then when I started hunting more, sometimes you got to get to the stand early in the morning. So I prefer afternoon hunting. You get there in the daytime, and as soon as it starts getting dark, you're out. But in the morning, you got to get there in the pitch black, quietly get to your stand, and then just sit there in the dark for an hour, right? That walk to the stand, even for a grown man, that's nothing to play with. And here's what, I had to sort of confront these thoughts that I hadn't had since I was a little kid taking the trash out to the trash can. But here's what I realized. Here's why I bring this up. Imagine you're the kid taking the trash to the trash can. I would not feel fear, not an ounce of fear, until I started imagining what might be coming for me in the darkness, right? It's when I start picturing what might happen to me that I start to feel really anxious and fearful. It's when you're the little kid and you think, uh, I don't know what's over there, I don't know what's back there, what might be coming behind me, what is it? You start picturing all of these horrible outcomes, that's when you feel overtaken with fear. And that's funny when you're thinking about a little kid taking the trash out, but when you're an adult, waiting on the diagnosis to get back from the doctor, feels different, right? Start imagining what's going to happen. What's it going to say? What am I going to do if it says this? What if it's this? What if this happens? Same thing starts to happen. Fear. Tense, anxious, stressful. Now, where are my thoughts? Are they on what is pure and true and lovely and commendable? No. They're on some vague future that might befall me. So what are we to do? Well, apparently, according to this text, I can take my mind in hand and turn it this way or that way. With the Lord's help, I can say, no, I am not going to sit here and dwell on this or that possible horrible outcome. I'm going to think about God. I'm going to think about Christ. I'm going to think about the needs of my brothers and sisters around me instead of my own needs and my own possible needs. Instead of being consumed with my suffering, let me look around and try to see problems that other people are having, and I can alleviate their suffering. Let me start by looking around my home. What does my husband need? What does my wife need? What do my kids need? What, what decision could I make right now that would make my kids like really, really amped? They'd just be thrilled if we did this right now. Let me do that. What could I do for my wife that would just make her very happy? Like, could, could I clean? Like, like, what is it that would just make her feel better? Let me pursue that. Now, suddenly, what are you doing? You're thinking and acting in accord with the needs of other people instead of sitting there navel-gazing at your own worries and problems. I'm not saying that's a silver bullet to anxiety, but it is something to consider, that you can control your own mind. So instead of worrying, instead of being anxious, we're to think on things that are beautiful and praiseworthy. Christian, the point is, you have a moral obligation from God to put certain things in your mind and to reject certain things from your mind. And you will be held accountable for how you steward your mind. One final consideration on verse 8. The language Paul uses here, it's actually really unique in the New Testament. I've referenced this once or twice already, especially in his own writings. These words, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence, praiseworthy, two of those words seen nowhere else in the entire New Testament. Only place in the whole New Testament they're used. One of those words, 
This is the only time it's ever used in Paul. Another one of them is only used by Paul like once or twice in the pastoral epistles and nowhere else. So they're just uncommon words. Um, as uncommon as they are in the New Testament, they are very popular in sort of the secular Greek world of that day. So you can look at literature from this time period outside of the Bible and see these words all over the place. Especially that word excellence. That's one that's, I mean, it's Greek literature, Greek art, Greek philosophy. If you've done a lot of like, classical studies, you'll know that idea of excellence or virtue being all over the place in Greco-Roman thought. Uh, one New Testament scholar said this about this text. He says, what's striking about this text is its complete uniqueness in Paul's writings. If we were to take away, finally, brothers and sisters, this sentence would more readily come from any of the Greek philosophers, like Epictetus or Seneca, who were two Stoic philosophers, than it would from Paul. Another commentator says, Paul has clearly pressed these terms into his service from the ancient Greek culture around him. So why does Paul do this? Doesn't this create sort of an issue? They're supposed to be heavenly citizens, right? They're supposed to be thinking of things above. Remember from Philippians 3, Paul says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, where Christ is, and we await a Savior from it. So why now in this final exhortation does he draw so clearly from their cultural context? He's made such a big deal about them being heavenly citizens. Why is he now drawing his material from Greek philosophers of their day? Well, listen to Paul. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on it, consider it, take it into account. So although they're heavenly citizens, they are to capture whatever is good and true and beautiful from the world around them and do so as citizens of heaven. So even though he has urged them to keep their focus on things to come, on their resurrection, on future glory, he now urges them that we are not to miss whatever is lovely and praiseworthy and excellent in the world around us as it is. As believers in Christ, we ought to embrace the best of this world while we await the world to come. So let me encourage you, Christian. This world is God's world. All of this world is God's world. And though you are a citizen of heaven, you are not to altogether abandon the world which you still live in. For instance, have you ever wondered as a Christian, like how do I make use of Homer, of Shakespeare, of Dickens, of Isaac Newton, of Michelangelo, of Tolstoy? Like whatever the realm, literature, science, Mathematics, art, physics, linguistics, like name your discipline. If there is excellence to be observed, if there is virtue to be learned and gained, if there is truth to be considered, then it is within God's realm. And it is to be a feast for the Christian mind. We are to feast on what's true, what's excellent, what is lovely. So if you want to read a biography of George Washington or Frederick Douglass, or Napoleon. Christian, do it. Do it. If you want to introduce your family, your children to the Lord of the Rings films, do it. 
glory together in them. If you want to paint, if you want to take photographs, like if you want to capture what is beautiful in this world and preserve it for other people to see and you realize the heavens declare the glory of God, what a lovely sunset, let me capture this on canvas so other people can worship God with me in this beauty. Christian, do it. That is your domain as a Christian. All things are yours. Do you want to learn about the cell? Like your entire body is made up of cells. Don't you want to know about them? Like, aren't you the least bit curious about all these micro operations that are happening all the time that are keeping your body going? I was watching a documentary recently on Darwinism, and uh, the guy's interviewing a, uh, he's like a, a mathematician, his name's David Berlinski, and uh, the guy's interviewing David Berlinski, and he says, uh, uh, Darwin's Origin of Species was published in 1859. At that time, our knowledge of the cell was pretty rudimentary. Like it was just sort of a, a blob is how even scientists thought about the cell at that point. So he asked him, he says, Mr. Berlinski, if in Darwin's day the cell was about as complex as a Buick, uh, today, how complex is the cell? And without even hesitating, Berlinski says, it's a galaxy. Isn't that stunning? These hyper-complex things that are happening in your body right now. Well, who made the cell? Whose idea was the cell? Sort of like God when he asked Moses, who made man's mouth, right? Now, the hard sciences aren't a place that is hospitable to Christian thought right now, but young people, if you're interested in the sciences, go. Observe, study, learn, and then propagate to others God's truth about how our bodies work. Wherever there is truth, wherever there is beauty, wherever there is excellence or virtue or praiseworthy things, we ought to be actively directing our mind towards them. So if you're a Christian, you don't have to read theology all the time. But when you read anything, it ought to drive you to the worship of God. We ought to love, and we need to be omnivorous in our appetites for ammunition to glorify God. The sciences, the arts, Wherever we can find it, we ought to put our minds towards what is lovely and true and beautiful for God's sake. So, while we don't blindly accept everything that's out there in the marketplace of ideas, we don't blindly reject everything either. We discriminate amongst them. We separate the good from the bad. We hold fast to what is good and we reject what is evil. Let's move on to the second heading. This will be much quicker. Think on these things, verse 8. Verse 9, practice these things. Let's look back at our text. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul's desire is obviously not that we should just sit around and think about good things but that our good thoughts would be fuel for good deeds. Our thoughts should and will manifest in practice. So Paul escalates from verse 8 to verse 9. He goes from think on these things to practice these things. He goes from a promise also that not only will the peace of God guard your hearts and minds, but that the God of peace himself will be with them. He says, finally, brothers... At the beginning of our text, 
This is the closing of the letter. So here at the end, what is Paul telling them to do? He's telling them to practice what they've seen modeled in him. His message, his actions, his behaviors. They ought to model themselves after Paul. Paul's concern in this whole letter has been that the Philippians would understand key aspects of the gospel and that that understanding would manifest in the lived out effects of the gospel on their deeds. He wants them to have the mind of Christ among themselves and he wants them to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Therefore, it's not surprising that Paul would close the letter on this sort of note. So let's ask the question, what exactly are we to to focus on in terms of practice? Well, the short answer is Paul's example. He's already said this before. In chapter 3, he said, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So imitate me together and imitate anyone who's imitating me, is what Paul has told them in the previous chapter. So Paul doesn't just tell them to imitate his manner of life, but also to practice the things they've heard and believed from him. Gospel truths that he told them when he was there in Philippi with them. Also, presumably, the contents of this letter, the letter as a whole. And remember, this letter has been surprisingly autobiographical. Remember, we've brought this up several times throughout Philippians. It's been like over a year that we've been in this book. But Paul's mentioned himself a lot in this letter compared to other letters. Relatively large portions of Philippians have been about Paul. Chapter 1, he speaks openly about the current state he's in, in prison, and how he has responded to his suffering. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He continues on that note in chapter 2. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad. I rejoice with you all in that. He talks about how dear Timothy and Epaphroditus are to him. In chapter 3, perhaps the most autobiographical chapter, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Tribe of Benjamin. People of Israel. Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He goes on that long sort of autobiographical rant about how he came to faith in Christ. In our current chapter, where is he about to go? Right after this text, he's going to say, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In all these things, I've learned the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then he'll finish this book by saying, it was kind of you to share my troubles. You Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership and giving with me except you only. So this theme that runs through this letter is its author, Paul. We've said many times in this series that that's due to the warm and affectionate relationship he has with the Philippians. So now it makes sense for him to draw their minds to him and to his example in the closing of this letter. What you have learned from me, what you've received from me, what you've heard from me, what you've seen in me in my life, practice these things. Do what I do, Paul says. He calls their minds now at the close of the letter to the message that he brought to them and the life he lived before them, and he says, you act in accord with those things that you've seen in me. Quick application here. Could you commend your life this way? Like, what if every Christian in the kingdom of God lived like you live in terms of their devotion to Christ, their knowledge of Him, 
their love of communion with him there, their delight in serving him. Because that's what Paul's saying here, right? I want you all to think and act like me. And he's not doing so in a way that's haughty or or proud. He's sincere. Could we ask the same thing? Do what I'm doing. Probably not. But may we live with such integrity. Right? May we be that consistent in the work, both inside and with our hands and words and deeds. May we be commendable Christians. And finally, Paul closes the paragraph with the assurance that if you practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. What an assurance. Remember, these Christians are beset with enemies. They have opposition. Paul has talked about their their foes. Remember, Paul urged them earlier. He says, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. They're they're, they're seeing Paul in conflict when he's there with them and even now they're hearing that Paul is in conflict and then they're reading in this letter how Paul has responded to his sufferings. They're to imitate him in that response. Faith, trust, reliance on God, side by side, together, standing firm in the faith of the gospel. Even in chapter four, how did he open this chapter? My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That promise stands for us now. That consolation that he offers them. That if we suffer well, if we practice well in accord with the example that Paul has left us, the God of peace himself will be with us. God's own presence will be with us. What anxiety can assail you if God is with you? What opponent should frighten you if the God of peace himself is present with you? So looking back over verses 6 and 7, the message from two weeks ago, we saw Paul call us to trust God to rely upon him, to depend on him in times of anxiety. That trust was primarily expressed through prayer. We were promised that God's peace would guard our hearts and minds as we rely upon him. These verses, verses 8 and 9, call us now to practical obedience. Trust, reliance, dependence. Now, verse 9, practical obedience in our practices. Verse 8, practical obedience in our thoughts and considerations. We're promised God's presence if we will obey in that way. We are to trust and we are to obey. Should sound familiar to many of you, right? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Many of us grew up singing that song. So I just want to close by reading our text one more time. So look at verse 6, and we're going to read down to verse 9. And I'll close with this. Brothers, sisters, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God, we are aware, we are acutely aware that our minds are prone to all sorts of disobedience. That our thoughts are so often on ourselves, our comfort, our leisure, what we want. God, from the time we were very little, that has been the sum total of many of our thoughts. What do I want? But Lord, please, with your Spirit's help, we want to think on better things. We want to think on things that are pure and lovely and good and true. So God, we ask you for help. Help us to defeat our sin in our mind. God, help us to fix our thoughts on you and on your son and on all your works that praise your name. God, then help us to obey. Help us to practice rightly. God, help our words and deeds and actions to reflect the fact that you, the God of peace, dwell with us. God, we want to be spiritually minded. We want to live according to the Spirit because you've told us that to live according to the Spirit is life and peace. So God, please bring us life and peace this morning as we obey in our thoughts and actions. In Jesus' name, amen.